Welcome to episode number 58 of the Fitness Devil podcast. We've got Travis Pollen on here today. Travis will talk a little bit about explaining the factors that contribute to injury risks for everyday people and uh, practical ways to try to avoid getting hurt in the gym. We talk about core training and what people really mean when they say they want to train their core. Hint, it usually has to do with getting abs and getting leaner. Uh, Travis is a Paralympic record holding swimmer. So we talk a little bit about that and ways to get involved in fitness, even if you have physical limitations or injuries. Our industry recently got upset about a couple of things. An article about people over 50 shouldn't lift weights or do basic exercises and how our industry got pissed off about that. The problems with such black and white statements and how we sometimes get a little too caught up in targeting this kind of misinformation and some practical discussions surrounding that and some Australian fitness model who talked some pseudoscientific nonsense about the Krebs cycle. You'll have to listen and find out more about these discussions. So hopefully you enjoy it. Thanks. Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, today on the podcast we've got my friend Travis Pollan joining us. Uh, a little bit about Travis, he's got a Master's of Science in Biomechanics, he's a personal trainer, and one of the cool, more unique things is he's an American record-holding Paralympic swimmer. We're actually going to get into that a little bit more, uh, but let's actually jump right in, and Travis, what have you been up to lately? What have you been most recently focused on in your career? Well, first, thanks for having me on, guys. It's a, a treat. Um, and so... And for the kind introduction as well. Uh, I'm currently working on my PhD in rehabilitation sciences at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Uh, my research is focusing on movement screening and risk factors for injury in athletes. So I actually just published, or I'm going to have published a paper on the functional movement screen, a, a critical review of it in the Clinical Journal of Sport Medicine. So that's hopefully coming up in the next three years based on the way that <laughs> scientific research gets this but yeah. hopefully in a few weeks. And uh, I, I just started collecting data for my dissertation, which is looking at risk factors for injury in swimmers. It's actually kind of ridiculous the number of PhD and PhD candidates and highly educated people we've had on this podcast. I met you in Spokane last, uh, or this past uh, April, I guess. And that's also where the first time I met Brad Dieter and James Krieger, both of whom have appeared multiple times on this podcast. Those guys are PhDs. I feel like we need to go get our PhD because everyone that's like coming, it's like, oh, I got my PhD. And you, you know, it's not easy, but then it's just like, oh, I'm a PhD. You know what's <laughs> cool though? It's like, if you can find a PhD like a, a PhD yeah. student position where you can do the research that you're really passionate about, it actually is fun. Like I just spend most of my days geeking out, like reading stuff that I'm interested in, talking to interesting people, and like they pay me a very small stipend. But can you still work uh, like, when you do it? Like, so this is the big thing I had. Like when I was looking into it, it was like kind of finding a good pro. I, I didn't end up doing it. Um, do you work and do your job while you're doing that? Because you can drag it out over a long period of time. Right. So you have the option, you could do it part time and it could take you seven years, uh, <laughs> you know, tr working and training full time and doing the like one class at a time. Or what I decided was I would just, you know, pause most of my fitness stuff and give the PhD like my full time attention just because I wanted to be able to devote 100 percent of my 
focus to this opportunity because I have all the resources, I have the faculty at my disposal, and I didn't want to ha- be working a bunch of nights a week at a gym or whatever. And the downside of that, at first I was doing just Saturday mornings still at the gym just to try to keep my head in the game. Yeah. Um, but ultimately I decided that I needed to sleep too. So <laughs> I, I'm still training people online to just try to stay in the flow of things. But it, it's I would love to be able to say, yeah, I have one foot in the personal in the gym door at the same time as the research side. But for the three or four years, probably maybe four or five years that it takes me to do it, like it, it's unfortunately a necessary evil to have to walk away a little bit from the in the trenches stuff but you can see your doctor at the end and i think that's that's what everyone wants just just to have the letters and be like i'm a doctor you know what's funny though so when i got my (laughs) master's i was like you know what once i have my master's like i'm gonna be an expert and i'm gonna like people are gonna listen to me people are gonna believe what i say and then once i got the master's i was like well maybe once i get my phd And to a certain extent, it's true. You can, if you put doctorate before, you know, PhD at the end of your name, people, it does command some respect, but you could not have any degree and just be a really smart guy. And that demands just as much respect. I feel like first impression wise though, like that's where, that's where it comes in the all for sure. You could just, just slowly. I I still think it depends on the individual. You know, you look at some of the guys we talked about, like again, Brad Dieter is a PhD and he's one of the nicest people in the world. Dean Somerset's not a PhD. Brad Dieter. No, but uh, Somerset, he's not a PhD in people. I thought he had his PhD in mobility. Does he? (laughs) No. No, there's no... (laughs) He doesn't... (laughs) He can start that program. Dean has got a whole bunch of credentials. He's not a PhD. And yeah, he commands a lot of respect because of the fact that he's been doing this for years and years and years and presenting and all the other stuff that he does. Nice way to sneak him in early in this one. Good. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, you could be an idiot and somehow have managed to sneak your way through a PhD. And that'll, that'll show. That's what I wanted to do. Well, we, we do know <laughs> that there are a lot of it. Again, we beat this horse to death sometimes, but like a lot of famous charlatans who are technically doctors like Dr. Oz and Dr. Mercola. And, you know, that, that again, that does appeal to a, a certain type of audience. And those people will blindly follow anything they say. But, um, yeah, it's blanket statement to say that the doctor automatically is going to command respect. I still think it has a lot to do with the type of individual and the type of following that you incur. So let's get into some of your knowledge. Um, and you mentioned like a lot of your study is relating to injuries. So we know that injuries, they, they can happen to anybody. We see it within athletes. But we also see it with everyday people. I, I'm very lucky. I've got a really brilliant physiotherapist. I'll shout out Darren Bishop. He's been awesome. That a lot of my clients and people that I know have, uh, he's taken great care of them. So we've, we've mentioned him once before in the um, Sam Spinelli podcast, which is really good. There's a brilliant physiotherapist right there. He's got he's a phenomenal, right? yeah. Smart dude. So we know that many people deal with some form of injury in their training career. What I was hoping you could clarify is some of the risk factors that, or the factors that can contribute to injury risk among regular gym goers. And Mm -hmm. some of the strategies that people can employ to minimize those risks. Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is that, you know, the fact that you have a good relationship with a physical therapist or physio is huge because a previous injury is probably the biggest risk factor for a future injury. Either a re-injury, the same injury over again, or a different injury, maybe in the opposite leg if you had an ACL or whatever. So fully rehabilitating is a huge piece of not getting injured again. But the, so most times when people think about injury, they just see, or that what comes to mind is the 
the inciting event it's called. So like when the ACL goes or when the hamstring goes or whatever it is. And what people don't necessarily think about is all of the factors that are leading up to that actual injury occurring. And so in the research it's talked about, uh, they break it up into what they call internal and external risk factors. So an internal risk factor would be something like how old you are, your sex, your body mass index, how strong you are, the way that you move. And so if you have these internal risk factors, these are said to predispose you to injury. But if you were just to sit on the couch all day as an, like an older female, overweight, like if you didn't expose yourself to any sort of training load, then you probably won't get hurt. So it, it takes the combination of the predisposition to injury and then exposure to training. So that might be working out in the gym or playing a sport. Um, and the, maybe a higher training load is more likely to cause injury or a higher training load compared to being used to a lower training load. So like take your typical person who's going from couch to 5K uh, they realize two weeks before the race that they haven't done any training and they so, go, suddenly go out and run 20 miles the week before because they've just been sitting on the couch. They're probably more likely to incur an injury. So all of these internal risk factors and exposure to external stress lead up to the event that where the stress of the event exceeds the tissues tolerance and that's when the injury occurs or, or maybe a series of events in, in the case of an overuse injury but it's not just oh that person did something wonky and that's why they tore their acl it's like well they've had all these micro traumas leading up to it they haven't trained appropriately and they other things too like they were underslept they didn't eat right they weren't hydrated they were stressed like all of these oh, things yeah. also play a role. So, so in the case of somebody in the gym, like you don't just want to take your trainer's program and say, okay, here's what we're doing today. It says one RM back squat, but I didn't sleep last night. Like my dog died and I feel like crap. So you want to think about auto regulating your training so that you take what's written and you say, well, how do I feel today? What, what's my current status before just jumping right into well, it? I was going to say that's probably the, not even a problem, but a lot, large part of what I see. And even, even if I look back to my powerlifting days is you'd have to, you'd have this strict program and you know, you feel like crap and you end up doing it anyways. And that's usually always when stuff goes wrong is that oh, yeah. whole idea of my trainer wrote it. So I have to follow it like word for word, but that's kind of against your your better judgment, usually when you feel like shit, and they do it anyways. And some of our industry, this what you said makes me think of The Rock and something that he sort of the Rock. does. Um, Dwayne Johnson? Yeah, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> okay. and most people know him more <laughs> now as Dwayne Johnson. Um, this mentality that you have to you know, be hardcore, push through things, all this. The Rock recently, I, I'm so used to calling him The Rock. I, I know now I, it's Dwayne Johnson. So Dwayne Johnson I, recently. I, I just want to point out, I call him The Rock too. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so by the people's champion that's yeah, true yeah there you go. he <laughs> not too long ago put up some sort of poster or thing about listing off all these surgeries the guys ever had and it was a laundry list of really serious crazy shit now he played football and he was a wrestler for a long time so some of that stuff is just based on that kind of lifestyle 
doing stunts, some stunts in his movies. But you also see this guy who is approaching 50. He's jacked as fucking hell and ripped. He allegedly sleeps four hours a night and he trains like an absolute maniac early in the morning. Like this is part of his image. So people can get swept up in this idea that, yeah, you need to sacrifice sleep. But our society is getting better at going, okay, sacrificing sleep is bad for us. We understand this now more than ever. But if you get, well, swept, we we, we get swept up in this we idea do. that yeah. you need to sacrifice and you need to train to maximal craziness all of the time in order to get where a guy like that is. He's an anomaly for starters. But I liked the fact that he actually did put out there the fact that there's this ridiculous list of serious injuries and surgeries that the guys had. I think it's really important to take that into account because I'm sure there is to some degree a relationship there. Yeah. So you have to think about how much you're willing to go through that BS to get to your goals, right? You know, if you want to have 20 inch arms, but do you also want to have had a million surgeries because you train your arms seven days a week or well, I think is, it, is it Mike Isotel's um, his model anyways the more you get into specificity the, just the more you lose things and that's usually when injuries happen it's just power is a perfect example like they're all sagittal playing up and down and if they were to go catch a football one day just they don't move outside of those planes very well and then they're just asking for trouble but what you think you are and then what you specify and then you get put in these situations that's when shit goes wrong it's like um, couch the 5k like, that's not a good idea for some people if you haven't been running. Well, anyone yeah. who's got any experience with, you know, going back and all of a sudden jumping back into hockey or softball or whatever <laughs> as a 40-year-old, uh, you know, having played it growing up and then or going out, you know, some weekends and doing this sort of stuff and then going full tilt. We know that that's why well, hamstrings get torn. I get asked I to play, like, flag football because I, I played college football and I'm like, no. They're like, well, it's just <clears> football. I'm like, I'm not ready. Like, I will hurt myself. And I know that. Cool. But And also in a sport like that or or I know rugby, like, yeah. I went to a Division three college and the people at my college really didn't know how to play rugby. And so every woman on the rugby team had a concussion and it's like you in a sport where there's not a lot of protective equipment, you really need to know how to tackle and you really need to understand yeah. the rules. Otherwise, the, the in, injury risk is going to be elevated. Well, and it, so if you're, you're used to playing football, but you're going and playing, even if it's flag football, still, with people who have no idea what they're doing, that's a recipe for injury. Well, yeah. and just I know the risk factors, but I don't think a lot of people do. And it's just like, it seems like a fun idea until you blow your so Achilles playing on Interesting a field point that you bring up because i was just reading about this the other day sort of like psychological risk factors for injury yeah and there's been some research that's shown if you perceive your risk of injury to be elevated you will actually be less likely to get injured because oh. you're recognizing that you are at risk or, or there are risks and you're going to actively mitigate them which is sort of counterintuitive because you would think some people just have a good sense of whether they're going to get injured or not and if they think they are they will well, but, think, and it's only been a couple of studies, so that's actually. It'd be interesting to see their performance, though. I bet, like, it's like that whole idea: if you're scared of getting injured, you might not get injured, but then you'll suck. So right, I don't so know. That's, that's, I'm gonna look at that too. Yeah. I'm looking at all of these risk factors yeah. for injury in swimmers: previous injury, on land movement, in water movement, yeah. training load. But then I also put into my, I just kind of snuck it into my research yeah. proposal that I would look at performance too, and see if there's like a sweet spot, because maybe you can like be just. Not the best performer, but you'll have a longer career. So over time, you'll be better because you're a little bit risk averse. But mm-hmm. then, uh, we'll see yeah. how that so, pans so out. From the, just from the injury prevention standpoint, I think it's about trying to modify the risk factors that you can modify. So you can lose weight. Um, you can, if flexibility is a 
thing in your target activity. Like, like if you're trying to do Cossack squats and yeah. you, you, know, <laughs> you don't have the flexibility for it, then that's something that you would need to work on in order to get to doing Cossack squats. Otherwise, when you try to do them, you could potentially hurt yourself. So just trying to modify those things, but then recognizing that if you're, you know, an older adult or sometimes for certain injuries, if you're a female um, or if you have really shitty form on the deadlift, like that could be recipe for injury. Let's go to like stuff that I think we, we're talking about injury and stuff, but there's stuff you can kind of work around it. But people like like to know about core training. And that's the best way to like prevent injury and be better at your lifts. So and a lot of trainers talk about this. Our question to you is, do, do we need it? And like kind of what are the myths and misunderstood aspects of core training? Quote unquote. Yeah, so, so a couple of weeks ago, I saw a meme and you, you see these every so often. It was like, as long as you're training your chest, your back and your legs, then you're probably doing enough core training without having to do direct core training. And it's like, there might be some truth to that, right? Like, if you're doing compound exercises like push-ups and pull-ups and squats and deadlifts, like you're definitely having to stabilize your torso to perform those exercises. Like a push-up is really just a moving a moving plank. Yeah. Same with a pull-up, overhead press, whatever. But you can't necessarily say for everybody in every instance that that is always going to be true because it depends what they want to do, where they're at now. Um, what they like to do, if you like core training, then yes, core training is probably a good idea for you because it's going to get you in the gym. So the the answer really, as with anything, is it, the answer is it depends. And that's an annoying answer, but it's true because you can never say that nobody needs core training or everybody needs core training because there are always exceptions to the rule. I think one of the, the things I encounter the most, and I think we'll find this across the industry, when people talk about needing to train their core, wanting to train their core, they actually aren't referring to core strength or injury prevention at all. What they really mean when you ask a few questions is Abs. they want to lose body fat off of their midsection. And this yeah. is sort of pervasive. I think people more and more understand that, no, you can't effectively spot reduce body fat. You know, that myth was around a long time. It really isn't the way it works. You're right. They want the abs and they still, it's the way people communicate that their real goal is to lose weight around their midsection. So I think sometimes it necessitates asking more questions and for the enthusiasts to actually communicate this effectively because sometimes, you know, you get in front of a trainer or fitness professional who's not listening. So then they'll go and they'll, okay, we'll give you some core training. But what they didn't hear was the fact that what you really care about is you want to have a smaller waist, you want to have more visible abs. And core training direct core training is not the best avenue for that that doesn't mean that you can't have some of it in the program it means that you have to pay attention to nutrition which is the big driver of that and yeah. then you know if you want to increase uh, exercise calorie output well it may mean some higher intensity training modalities or a lot of big compound lifting to and building muscle to build a little bit of metabolism the way that people state that effect is is generally very overstated oh you're a fat burning machine there's an effect it's just not as grandiose as what people like to portray it to be. But mm -hmm. I still think that a lot of the time it's important to recognize the fact that people are, are really not talking about strong midsection, which they do fucking need. They're actually talking about, well, right. I want to actually lose weight. It didn't yeah, work. And, and that, I think that's really important what you said about trainers not listening or the, the person not voicing it appropriately. So asking those questions, questions. that will actually elicit what the real, their, what their real goal is. 
What what I found with core trading core is that as I've gotten stronger, I've neglected it more, and it's shown up in not in well, sort of injuries. So it's almost like that whole idea of they were like, if you just squat and deadlift, it's enough for core. And I, I almost noticed the the opposite. <laughs> I needed to do yeah. more I, not direct work, but more specific work in terms of what I was doing. I, I think that you get a good core stimulus from doing heavy barbell exercises, but there's not you're not going to be able to get the same effect as if you're doing like hanging leg like really yeah. target like ab standing ab will rollouts let's say like not yeah. no amount of weight on your back is going to have the same effect as that what, what so I found, if, if yeah. it ends up that your core becomes your limiting factor because you've gotten really strong in these other movements then that's when you might need to add in some direct well, and what i found is with like those movements you're talking about is that what they almost do is they elicit a position where your core has to like I guess, quote unquote, turn on, but then position in squats and we'll just use squats and deadlifts. If your position's off, you're not going to feel it as much in your core and then you'll, you'll kind of recruit other stuff. And it's easier to get position, your, your bones to line up in stuff like hanging leg raises because you're fucking hanging and you have to use it. Where deadlifts, most people will kind of arch over and then you, you've yep. lost your core. Whereas, yeah, you can, you can rely on passive restraints <clears throat> in those other exercises just by overarching and yeah. it might not be totally visible to the naked eye you can't with leg raises like all the calisthenic stuff you have to or those you don't do it so you let's can't. actually ask this then um what do you feel are some of the most effective yeah. core exercises and ways to train core and what are the classically overrated and relatively ineffective things for the purpose of actually producing a stronger core musculature yeah so i think that uh, a lot of times exercises like crunches and sit-ups get overused by the general population and not to say that those are exercises that you should totally abstain from as there is a tendency to be this all-or-nothing approach but so take it back a little bit i think that for newer trainees exercises like planks and glute bridges like or glute bridge holds maybe like isometric exercises where you're making sure that you're feeling the muscles that you want to be feeling, um, you're able to breathe in those positions. That, that's where I would start for people who are new to exercising. And then once they've gotten that under control, you can add in some dynamic movement like of the arms and legs around the stationary core. So that would be things like dead bugs, bear crawls, where you're, you're holding that position, or push-ups, but, but you dogs. are moving yeah. your limbs around it to create like an internal perturbation and you're resisting that. And then, and it, you don't necessarily have to follow this progression per se, but the way that I like to categorize things would be the, the final category would be your dynamic exercises. So your ab wheel rollouts, your hanging yeah. leg raises, and, and maybe sit ups and crunches do fall into that category for certain people, for wrestlers or MMA athletes. Like they need, they actually need hypertrophied muscles for body yeah. armor almost to. To serve as protection from getting hit, but or any even other contact sports that might be beneficial. Um, obviously, if you have contraindications, previous back pain, if it hurts to do certain exercises, that's when you don't do them. Um, but so, so that's sort of how I I think about it. One of my favorite uh, ways, one couple exercises I love as well, pull off press. If someone's mm -hmm. not familiar with that, that's just just go Google it, YouTube it. That one's pretty straightforward. That one's a great one, especially for the obliques. And I love load carrying both. Um, symmetrical bilateral load carrying so that would be like a trap bar or even weights in both sides but in particular one-sided load carrying yeah, suitcase like carries side, weighter it's carries. like a side plank yeah. but you're moving 
Absolutely. So yeah, so the other thing you want to think about is, oh, well, abs, abs, abs. Well, there's also obliques, there's erectors. So training all the planes of motion are in, are in three dimensions, not just the muscles on the front side of the core. Something else you mentioned too, and it's really worth noting, you mentioned glute bridges. Oftentimes, like, when I use the term core, and I'm, I'm usually fairly clear with this with clients, like I'm not talking about just abs. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm talking abs, I'm, I'm going to say abs. Core to me really is kind of everything between the shoulders and the hips. So I very much treat glute training and effectively engaging glutes as core training. The lats are an incredibly important core muscle, making sure they're strong. So I treat hamstrings as a core muscle. Control the pelvis, yeah. so it's like they, they do cross above the hips. That's so. actually that's actually part of the issue when you look into the research is that nobody really has a good agreement on what no. constitutes the core, and so you when you try to synthesize things everybody's got different definitions of core how to measure it and so suddenly you'll read something and it says well core strength doesn't have anything to do with injury it's like well it, it probably does it's not it's definitely not clear cut um but there are certain ways there are certain measures of core stability or core strength or neuromuscular control or endurance that have been associated with increased injury risk so you can't just throw that out um but Part of the problem is that when you're trying to define it and when you're trying to measure it, it gets... We, never, we didn't make it any easier with this conversation. That's the best part about it. <laughs> well, I mean, we've basically said like anything from shoulder to knee, that could yeah. be your core. And so this broad conceptualization is good. And then, like Andrew said, if you want to dial down into it, then mention the specific muscles directly. Yeah. I think a takeaway for anyone listening to this is, is train all these things, spend some time, give it some attention. And if you specifically need it, like you mentioned specificity towards your goals, then give it a little bit more attention. So if you do want like ripped, like hypertrophied ab muscles, then some crunches. I, I like cable crunches for that. That works really well. You're loading them up. I find it's less stressful on I the spine. I saw a gym fail video where the guy was bracing and hitting himself with the weight and medicine ball. Like in... That would work. We see yeah. a lot of weird shit in the industry for sure. But, but I, I totally agree with that. And I would just say if the other thing they have to think about is how much time you have in the gym. Yeah. So if yeah. you only have two 30-minute sessions, then maybe, depending on what your strengths and weaknesses are, maybe that isn't the best use of your time. But for most people, like most of my clients, yeah, I give them a few direct core training exercises a week. For myself, I don't do that much. Yeah. I actually barely train any direct core, but I'm very, very – trained in feeling my abdominals and obliques and bracing them yeah, effectively everything. through a lot of big barbell loaded movements, chin-ups, things of that nature. And I find that my core is, it's never been a weak point for me personally. Mm -hmm. But yeah. let's go into your experience as a Paralympic record-holding swimmer. Uh, I want to hear more about that. And let's take it further. What would you say to anyone dealing with a serious injury or a real or perceived limitation, and you can explain how that ties into you, uh, when they're pursuing their own fitness. Yeah, so I think this is something that I realized over the last few years as I've started to train, or as, as I've been training people, is everybody comes to you with something, like something that hurts or something that uh, they're, they're battling or, or that, and, and like a, an injury history, essentially. And so you're trying to find ways to work around those things in the gym. And oftentimes people think that there's nothing that they can do. And they just, they, that it is the way it is. And they have to sit on the couch because they, whenever they try to do something, it hurts. 
And so I would challenge those people because of my personal experience to just try a lot of different things because eventually, at least in my experience, I found something that worked really well for me, which was swimming. So to rewind a little bit, like when I was a little kid, I played junior Jewish basketball. I played little league baseball. And uh, I, I mean, when I, when I was really little, nobody kept score and nobody knew who was good. But as we sort of got into like our early teenage years, I, I felt like I was slowing down compared to everybody else. Um, I, my last year of Little League, I batted zero. So that was when I finally realized that it was time to hang up the cleats. But I, and part of that was just that I probably don't have any natural talent for those sports, but also the fact that I was born missing my leg um, made it more difficult to, for me to play those sports. So after that, like when I started getting into high school, I tried out for the golf team. That wasn't my thing. But finally, my sophomore year, I like sort of on a whim showed up to the first day of swim practice. And uh, seven years later, I tried out for the Paralympics. So I what I ended up finding was that swimming was the one activity where I felt like missing my leg didn't have a really negative impact on my performance because for one thing, a lot of people don't even bother kicking that much anyway. And for another, I, like in <laughs> high school at least, I was just able to work. I was able to outwork everybody else and be uh, like level the playing field basically. So, yeah, it, it was a lot of hard work, and I wasn't very good at first. But over time, like I was beating other kids from other schools and races, and the, their look of surprise when like I would hop out of the pool on one leg, having just smoked them in a race, was like. <laughs> Priceless. So, <laughs> so you, the you're the only like, one that would get that. <laughs> People the point do. is, like, if you if you try lifting weights and you don't like it or it doesn't feel right to you, try swimming, try yoga, yeah. try Zumba, like, try something else that maybe you'll find that you really enjoy and it really works well for your body. Um, what the hell was I going to say? So people actually really do need to, like, go. I think I think it's on your Facebook. Uh, maybe put up on your Instagram. But uh, you doing legitimate single arm chin-ups oh right? yeah because you don't weigh a whole well, does, lot does anyone beat you and be like oh you have like one less leg so it's oh, cheating yeah <laughs> there, there's always a couple of those people they're not wrong so if i weigh like 120 pounds like if you guys weighed 120 pounds you'd be doing one arm chin-ups too cheater so like don't get me wrong i had to really work on them and uh they're not easy uh but I do have a, a little bit of an advantage. And it's not this bullshit where someone puts one hand on the bar, their other hand on their wrist. That's not a one-handed chin-up. That's completely that's another bullshit. That's like bullshit. an assisted. Well, the, the one thing I wanted to ask, because with, Paral- with Paralympics and, and amputees, I guess, like, there's no, like, pathway for sport-specific for, like, your type of injury. So, like, the progression into, like, I guess higher-level athletics wouldn't be the same progression because you have to try things. Because it's not like, oh, if you're missing a leg, like, swimming is the one for you. Start it at five and, and see what happens. Like, what – I guess what's the progression for finding those types of elite athletes at that level? Because they're probably not training as much. Like, starting in high school is, is pretty late in the game for, like, normal I, I swimmers. I definitely started late. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, is there, like, um, I guess, like – information to find for people dealing with those injuries to kind of find a sport for them based on injuries so that they can kind of, I guess, specify in a sport like normal athletes do. Cause like it's easy to specify well, I mean, for football so cause have, you need two legs. Yeah. If you have a di- like, if you're born with a disability or if you acquire a disability, at, at least where I am, there are resources like there, 
I when I was a little when I was a teenager, I, I got into some adaptive rowing and hand cycling. Yeah. And so I was just fortunate that 30 minutes from my house, there were a group of blind people and amputees that were, were doing these things and gave me an opportunity to try them. Yeah. Um, and, but if I guess the other place to go would be look online at like the U.S. Paralympics website and see what 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 sports are currently available and then try to find something locally that well just interesting to see how performance would go over time because it's it's kind of like um even if you look at certain people will specify in a sports based on their type of size and everything and our athletics and and records have been getting better and better over time so it'd be interesting to see if the paralympics have that same progression over time just from finding the right athletes for those sports i don't think it even really Uh, works that way i feel like this is a sort of thing where you, you, it tries to create opportunities for people who you don't wouldn't be able to pursue the traditional thing. Like we had a really tragic um, incident. There was a terrible bus crash where the Humboldt Broncos, this young junior hockey team, they like I think at least half of them were actually killed, and several others were seriously injured when a yeah. when a trucker just drove through a red light and just destroyed this bus. So I think a few of the survivors have immediately expressed interest in, the, in going and playing sledge hockey. Yeah. Is yep. I think what happened. I, I don't think this is a sort of thing where there's ever going to be quite quote formal ways to figure out who's going to be good at what. It's just about providing opportunities to people who are really still passionate about being active and playing and then supporting them. The, the crazy thing though is that you sometimes will see people doing things that you didn't think were possible. Yeah. So I like, <laughs> yeah, it makes sense that I can swim because I can use my upper body. And I, I just got started getting into rock climbing. It, it makes sense that I can rock climb at least the, you know, the more, uh, beginner to intermediate routes. But like when, when I've been going around to different gyms, I've been hearing stories of people like, Hey, I've seen a guy climbing with no arms. I'm like, that's impossible. I just said it. I was like, you can't play football without legs. You know what? There probably is a way to do it. So like, yeah. There's probably a lot of things well, you can do that you wouldn't expect. Who is it uh, that Oscar, uh, until it turned out he was a fucking murderer, Oscar Pistorius, the South oh, African. Yeah, he, he ran in the Olympics with two prosthetic legs. Yeah, he got called out for being a cheater. Blade Runner. Because <laughs> he was faster. He, so I, I've actually like read some of that research. It's interesting because <coughs> theoretically you could make prosthetic legs that would give you an advantage. And... I mean, that, that's really the goal of rehabilitation <laughs> yeah. biomechanics is to give people an advantage over the, you know, you yeah. have shitty circumstances. Let's hook you up with something that makes you superhuman. But they, they had stipulations in place like they if you're missing both legs, you can't have like giraffe length legs because then you'd just be able to cover the mile in you know that much shorter of a time. So so that they, they ended up finding that the I think the legs that he was using didn't give him an advantage. Um, but in certain respects, I think it did. Like once he got up to full speed, he was probably at an advantage. But starting, it was harder than for him than other people. So oh, it, it's it, I it, could just see this shit. It's, show. it's, it's think, annoying that people bring that up, but it's actually honestly there's some truth to it. I, I think if you're the person who's really got to point that sort of shit out, uh, I mean, Oscar's an easier target now because the guy literally is a piece of shit because um, yep. he killed his girlfriend. But. Uh, yeah, I think there are better battles to fight than arguing about something. I wouldn't fight that battle. Yeah. I'm not getting know. caught well, saying if, that. If you, yeah, I guess you have to think if you're on, like, let's say you live in South Africa and he took your spot on the Olympic team, or he beats you in a race. Like, I, I, <laughs> admittedly, as as somebody who was in that position, like, so 
when I when I raced, I raced against mostly with people people with a missing arm. Yeah. And because just because that was our classification, but it always annoyed me because I felt like missing an arm was less of a disadvantage than missing a leg when you're swimming. Because let's say in the water it's even, like just missing a limb yeah. is whatever. Yeah. But when you jump in and when you push off the wall with two legs, you have an advantage. So so when I, at that level, I would probably be like, hmm, I wonder if that guy has an advantage over me. <laughs> they have like infighting. They're like, don't hang out with that guy. Like, <laughs> do they have clicks? <laughs> As I'm asking like personal questions. Um, let's go to the, the fun one. So something popped up on the internet. Um, we saw a kind of report describing a wide array of beneficial exercises that are bad for people over 50. And it was kind of, it was really bad. It was, it was just more fucked and everyone kind of jumped all over it. So we often see sweeping statements about exercises being good or bad. I kind of want to hear your thoughts on addressing why we see this and the problem with such black and white general statements yeah. about fitness. So I've been, I've been wrestling with this for a while because this is, this is not new. This comes out no. every, every few months. Yeah. It's, I think the like primary purpose is clickbait, right? Reader's Digest or whoever started it wanted to get people to their website. Yeah. This always works. Like I, I made a spoof one, 13 exercises you should never do. And, and <laughs> when I got people to the website, I provided actual real good information. But the, the primary thing is that they want to get people onto the website. Yeah. So the, then the question becomes, are the makers of these articles actually, do they actually believe the stuff that they've written? And so I think that they do. I mean, if they don't, they're just trying to get a rise out of people. But let's say they do. If they do believe that stuff, I would say that their intentions aren't bad. I think that they're trying to keep people safe by telling them that these exercises are higher risk. But if you tell people, like, nobody over 50 should do these 14 exercises, yes, you're protecting the people who might have issues with those things, but you're also unnecessarily protecting people who are fit and don't have any reasons not to do those exercises. And so let, like, let's take the case of deadlifts and squats. Like we know if those are done well, then there's no reason that, uh, people over 50 shouldn't do them. So yeah, if people have like hip problems or knee problems or back problems, like maybe they should avoid <coughs> actually loaded exercises in some cases. But that doesn't mean that everybody should avoid them or that they're universally bad. It just means that certain exercises are higher risk for certain people. And so by saying everybody over 50 should avoid these exercises, what it actually does is it creates fear around those movements. Like, oh, my God, if you do leg press, you're going to hurt your back. Oh, my God, if you do squats holding weight in your hands, you're going to hold your back. You're going to hurt your knee or, or whatever it is. And so that's actually that runs counter to what our goals as fitness professionals are primarily, which is to get people moving because you start putting all these exercises off limits. And crazily enough, if people think that these exercises are injurious and they become fearful of them, it can actually hurt them more than if they thought that they, the exercises were fine because they'll, if they think that it's going to hurt, it could hurt. See, that sounds backwards from what you said earlier in this well, podcast. So I wonder explain if, that. I wonder if they go risk adverse, but they do it knowing that it could hurt them in a deadlift. They might be more, they would probably want to do it right. I don't know. That's interesting. Now I'm thinking. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. So, the, the perceived susceptibility to injury thing yeah. is, uh, I, I, 
there that there's only been limited research on that. But the the idea that if you tell someone that they are likely to have pain in as a result of something, that's pretty much like a, a scientific fact that they are more likely to have pain. That makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's where it's that's where it can get dicey because even if people. This is why I'm interested in it because let's just say you use the deadlift for example because we keep going to that. If someone thinks they're going to get hurt and they try to like activate all these things to get around being hurt, they end up shutting down or being too mobile for, or sorry, being too stiff for that exercise and then they don't move right. Does that make it's sense? It's a hypervigilance. Yeah. And then they end up moving like shit and then it ends up hurting them because they're thinking about the pain and then they're not actually mobile enough to do it because they're locking themselves down to brace and stabilize and it's almost the opposite effect. So hmm. I wonder if they have studies on that shit. Do they have studies that on that stuff? I have not seen that, but that doesn't mean it's not been studied. I, hypervigilance would be the thing to look up. Okay. Um, for anyone who's listening, hyper, can you describe hypervigilance for our... Just, just being like overly in your head about, okay, I need to make sure that my right hip is inter- externally rotated yeah. and my left butt cheek is firing and I'm gripping the bar and just like overanalyzing your movement to the point that you can't even lift the bar or, or when you do lift it, like you're just, you're all out of whack. A little something you learn as a trainer and I mean, I've done this plenty and, and I always take a step back when I realize I'm still doing it is you give a client too many cues mm-hmm. with an exercise that they're, they're struggling with, they're working on, then they get overwhelmed. And I always am very quick to own it and saying, I am actually giving you too much. Take a big yep. deep breath. Let's take a step back and let's simplify this. And then oftentimes focusing on the one big thing, using your yep. deadlift example. If you can create a straight back as someone lifts it, let's say you're using a trap bar, and they're very knee dominant, they're kind of squatting it, but guess what? The lower back is stable and they feel pretty good doing it. That's okay. Oftentimes, I don't worry too much about head position if I can get everything else right. When everything else is good, <clears throat> I'm really diligent about head position. Yep. So if you optimize that, that's great. But you take care of the big things first if it lets someone do it safely, and then you can refine out the other elements. We don't even, try to do it all at once. Even head position, like I backed off of that the more I know, because most people will put their head in the place where they can breathe the easiest. Yeah, because you guys are really obsessed with head position at one point. Well, it makes sense why you would do that, but people aren't, like, intuitively, people aren't stupid, so they're going to put their head in a spot where they feel the safest in space, and then if you kind of overcoach that, that's the hypervigilance. So if you get someone to, I guess, be aware of something that might not, they might not want to do without thinking about it, and you make them do it, they end up doing it worse, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's, I, that's the I, overcoaching. I totally, totally agree with all that, and I was was and I'm sure I still am still guilty of the over queuing thing. Yeah, I think that, like you said, the biggest thing is putting them in a position that they're safe and letting them figure that out. Mm-hmm. So like when I'm teaching a young athlete to deadlift, mm-hmm. if it looks okay and like they're not going to get hurt, I'm not going to talk about their neck position. I'm not like just, I, w- I want to get them to do it a few times. And because if they can figure it out themselves without me telling them something, that's going to stick better than if I give them eight things to think about, which then they're not going to be able to think about anything at all because they're going to be paralyzed <laughs> with too many cues. But if you can give them something safe, then maybe the next set you work on getting their hips higher so it's more hip dominant or maybe the next workout or maybe it's just, well, that's how they deadlift. That's fine. And that's, you know, good for now. I actually, I, I like that a lot. There are times, I've even said this to clients, I have a few clients who 
uh, I can think of one young man in particular. He's very tall, and his deadlifting and even his squatting form is not what you call classical. So if I were to say video or someone were watching it, they might look at that and be like, ah, that doesn't look right. I constantly ask him if he feels great. He feels amazing. It's giving him something he can do. And I'm very, I'm very vigilant about making sure that he's safe and feels great. And he's able to push himself. His form is getting better and better. When he started, he used some regressed uh, forms to keep him like, away from injuries because it was real messy looking stuff. And it's gotten a ton better and it continues to get very gradually better. But sometimes, that's why I'm a little careful about judging what I'm seeing other people do because you don't know well, where they came and from. the classical yeah. information on what is good if you kind of dive into biomechanics and all that stuff, and I'm sure you would know quite heavily on this, is that what's kind of common in the fitness industry is sometimes mostly wrong a lot of the time. So like everyone puts things in a box, but it doesn't account for a lot of variables. So that's what I mean. Like seeing things at first, like there's stuff you can see that's total shit, but everyone's quick to judge certain squat forms because they're power lifters. And it's like, they don't even understand the difference between a power lifter and a normal person and a squat that's wide and narrow. And they're, they're already putting people yeah. in boxes. I, I've been thinking about that a lot with the, the assessment stuff, just because <laughs> there's there are certain camps where people are saying, Oh, it has to be like this. But we know because of limb length ratios and <laughs> hip anatomy, like your different hip sockets, like not everybody's going to look exactly like that. So I think you're right when we say, well, we can agree that like, that squat is shit. Like you don't want to do that. But then the rest, like it's a range. Mm -hmm. Like Andrew's saying, like, and that, that's the trouble where you see one example of some trainer posting something on Facebook that's a great accomplishment for that person, and you say, well, that trainer doesn't know how to coach people because look at that client, his client's squat. You just you need the context. You need to know what. Maybe that person is squatting high because they have femoroacetabular impingement, mm -hmm. and that's their best squat for them. So you just, you never know. Dean, Dean Somerset actually has posted a video of his wife, Lindsay, who's been on our podcast. And they talked about it in that particular episode. And her personal best squat is high of parallel. Lindsay's hips will not let her get into a parallel squat. And, you know, for someone to come in and criticize that, you're just really missing the big picture. And it's someone doing something they really enjoy. And in my earlier years in, in training, I was militant about squatting to death. Absolutely. I am very vocal in the fact that if you possess the capacity... To do it under control, you should. One of my bigger pet peeves is seeing athletic coaches who exclusively train, hockey coaches in particular, exclusively train squats in their young athletes well high of parallel with the justification, well, hockey players do not get into the hip angle, the depth of a squat when they actually play the sport. That's complete fucking nonsense. And then it's used as a justification to excessively overload 15, 16-year-old like slightly built hockey players with weight that they have no business on their backs with really shaky form. That shit terrifies me. But that's why yeah. these articles are made. Yeah. Because I think, <laughs> especially in the case of hockey, I think that, yeah, the, the skating position is not a deep squat, but most hockey players skate too high. And so if you can get them stronger in a deeper range, they're going to be more comfortable getting into the all, stance that you all want the to fastest squatters go. Or sorry, skaters. If you look at them, they're like pitched over, and they're they're actually at pretty much parallel with their knee angle. And and if you want to be in context, they're also on fucking blades. <laughs> so I mean, like, well, do you want to squat with your freaking blades? Let's on? take it further. I mean, there <laughs> there can be some value in using some um, 
higher squatting. That that can be valuable. There's, yeah, there's I wouldn't say there. never do that. No. I would say sometimes do that, but mostly train four inch muscles. And, and, and still, like, you just got to make sure it's appropriate load and safe because the shit I, I right. see yeah, sometimes for a fourteen year old, like horrendous. you're not, or even a sixteen year old, they're not at the point yet where you need to worry about partial yeah. range of motion. Plus, stops. are your jobs just not to fuck them up? Like, let's yeah. be realistic. The the training for those kids is not going to be. The, they're going to be good at hockey regardless. Why would you even do something very risky with them? Your job is just not to fucking hurt them. Exactly. Like they're gonna. You're not gonna be the reason why they make the dub in the NHL. This we like hockey in Canada. Sort of. <laughs> I I, yeah. So I was working <laughs> at a gym with uh, a coach who's now an NHL strength coach, and so we trained a lot of hockey players. Oh, nice. Really got to know the sport. We actually nice. we wrote a book. Uh, it hasn't come out yet, but. Ooh. Um, so Dean sort of implied yeah. that maybe you wouldn't know as much about hockey as No, you. I wasn't. I, I actually knew based <laughs> and on then you just no, you just crushed it. I actually <laughs> knew when he talked about the skating angles, I was like, oh, he he knows hockey because like most people I, wouldn't even have said it, that. It's funny, like I I didn't watch a lot of hockey growing up, but as a pro, as a result of training a lot of people for a couple of years, and then <clears throat> in the process of writing the book with Kevin Neild as the the lead author, um, I, I ended up learning a lot about it. And you love Fascinating. it. You love it. It's your favorite sport, right? It's my favorite sport now. Yeah, it's, 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 sure. it's better than swimming, right? Let's take uh, <laughs> much, much better. It's like basically swimming but frozen. That's true. Yeah, you're with, still on water with, with contact. Uh, I, I want to see contact swimming. <laughs> you know what's funny? I was talking to one of my old coaches about this the other day. Swimming is surprisingly more contact than you would think. In open water too, they're like in those. Oh, that that in open water, it's really heavy contact at the start. But but, but what I mean is, like I've seen people break their hands finishing into the wall, and we we always say like finish hard because you've seen the the races in the Olympics where it's you know Michael Phelps edges out Cavage by a hundredth of a second, and that's like a fingernail, and it's really just because he was in Cavage was in the middle of his stroke and Phelps timed it well. But the point is, you want to finish hard in the wall, but not so hard that you break your hand. See, it's dangerous. It's dangerous out there in the pool. There's a famous story about how Phelps actually got water in his goggles, and he was okay because he was so practiced of the lengths of it, he'd rehearsed it so much. But yeah, I remember it that we reached out to the wall because he couldn't see it. He just knew it was there. But yeah, you he, mistime he, that he and you break your hand. He knows how many strokes it's going to take him to get the length of the pool because he's practiced it a million times. and it, It's better to be able to see it, but if you can't see it, then it it's race rehearsal. He's, he's the best Olympian of all time. Bar none. We'll get him on the podcast one day. Yeah, sure. <laughs> let's let's actually take some of the stuff we discussed and kind of flip it a little bit. And it, our industry jumped all over that article. Like, and it sometimes seems like there's a little bit of an echo chamber where we're scoring points with each other, arguing or or just like shooting down this really dumb shit that everybody for the most part kind of realizes is dumb shit. Yep. We have this Australian fitness model, Ashy Bynes, million and a half followers. She posted some ridiculous pseudoscientific nonsense about dieting and shutting down the Krebs cycle. And everybody went apeshit over that too. And I understand the desire and often the value in pouncing on misinformation. We've done tons of it on the podcast. But yet sometimes it feels like our corner of the industry, which can be a little small, um, does speak within that echo chamber and sometimes fails to get the point or do a really good job of penetrating the mainstream consciousness to deliver our, the better message in a better way. And instead it just seems like we just argue over the dumb shit that the Kardashians or the ashy binds of the world pump out there. Yeah. So I I, I totally agree. And I've been 
thinking about this, especially in my role as somebody who's trying to translate scientific information to, to other trainers, but also to general population people. So I think the first thing that we have to think about is what are these Instagram models doing that's allowing them to reach such large gen pop audiences? And maybe it is like, if you're a blogger, maybe it is resorting to clickbait titles to get people to the articles. And then once they're on there, you can give them the higher quality information. Um, I think I think the biggest thing is really just speaking the language of the people that you're trying to communicate with. So if you start using jargony exercise terms, um, that the average person is quickly going to tune that out because they're, they don't understand what you're saying. And so maybe we do have to resort to more buzzwords like, like toning uh, instead of oh, yeah. muscle hypertrophy and fat loss because that's what people are expecting and that's what they want to hear. And for some unknown reason, that's what works psychologically with people to get them to click on your site and buy your stuff. So in terms of the echo chamber that is our Facebook feed, when we're posting about, when we're complaining about this stuff, the same hundred or a few hundred trainers that we're connected with on Facebook are going to see that and they're all going to agree. And unless it gets shared and reaches new people, um, it's, it's not doing a whole lot to combat that on the larger scale. And I don't, I'm not sure what the answer is besides getting better at making, put, put like, putting our information in a way that people can understand it and getting better at marketing to reach new people. I noticed that there's a lot of people I see in our industry who are, and I've mentioned this on the podcast a few times, and some of them have been our guests. They're the type of faces and personalities and approaches that do have more potential to penetrate into a broader audience. Um, I often cite Sohi Lee. Mark Fisher is a really good example of that. His personality, Jordan Syatt. Um, just yep. to name a few, they're and, doing they're doing amazing jobs. And I don't really see those particular people tend to do what we're talking about. Um, Lane Norton and Holly Baxter did a, a video on the Ashy Bites. That's Lane. Lane loves to go after the stupid <laughs> shit like that. Uh, Lane's got bigger reach, but I find for the most part, a lot of the people who've got that potential are already cutting into a broader audience. I don't find that they tend to. Like just get caught up in the echo chamber, if that makes sense. I think yeah. Attention well, to focus Jordan, Jordan does a lot of myth debunking. Yes, but then you don't see him uh, participating in those echo chamber. <laughs> all three of those people in those conversations. So maybe that is a waste of our time. Yeah, I, I think when Jordan does it, especially it's, it seems not reactive to what's been floated out there, but more he takes the stuff that. Yeah, the, the myths that are sitting out there, and he presents them in a very accessible way to the everyday person. So I think Jordan does a really wonderful job of that stuff. Well, it's just hard. I don't know. Like, I think what I see it as, and even I fall victim to this, is I just don't want to do it the way it's presented. Like, the the bad exercise for people over 50, I just refuse to get into that marketing, I guess, tactic, which maybe getting into those tactics might be the way to get into the, into the game, dirty. you know what I mean? And yeah, a lot I, of us I, just refuse I to do it. I always feel like a, a little sleazy about it when I have a title like that. Yeah, but we should, well, it's almost like we have to get into the game to do it and all of us refuse to do it. So it's kind of like, hopefully at some point not doing it will be the norm. But I, I, like you said, I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to happen. There's a reason why the sleazy tactics are used because they work. Yeah. 
Ah, well, we haven't got all the answers yet, so we'll... Just be a little more sleazy. That's all. <laughs> I, I think that's the moral of just, the story. Just take a shower after. Uh, all right. I can't, you, you still can do it. Be a little more sleazy, but then once you've gotten the people onto your page Beat or onto switch. your feed, then that's when you can really deliver the high-quality information <laughs> that is going to like counter this BS Bait and switch. Cycle. Bait and switch every Bait time. Switch. Maybe Gwyneth Paltrow this whole time, her website, Gook or whatever the crap that is. Maybe like there's a deeper layer, the inner circle you pay a premium for, and actually she's putting out very scientifically valid stuff. I very much doubt that, but who knows? Maybe she's luring in all these idiots with her clickbait shit. No, she's steaming stupid. vaginas and stuff like that. She's stupid. Also, be more beautiful and get more Instagram followers. That's true. We've, we've had this discussion, like just get more naked. <laughs> Uh, that, so that's an interesting point, and I've been wrestling with that because there are some people who would say that's so unprofessional, and if you're supposed to be like a, a educator or a, a, a whatever, if you want to be professional, you won't take your shirt off. And I'm like, well, if I look good and it gets people to my page, and then I can give them good information, then maybe I should be taking my shirt off. Well, I think I that yeah, but I think that combats like I guess common knowledge would be like especially in we'll just call it the PhD field is that like if you're an educator and you're, you you did all the science stuff like that's not the way to do it. But at this at what point do you kind of like stop listening to what the norm should be and kind of start going to where people are actually um, listening? And it's that whole idea of communication. Like if people are listening to that, they're not going li- to like. How many common, we'll call it like common gym goers, know anything about any of the PhDs we talked about? They know fucking shit. But if you had your shirt off, they might actually listen to you. Yeah, no, like nobody knows who Eric Cressy, Mike Robertson, like if you walk into the average gym, they don't know them, but they know Mike Chang or like the Athlean X guy. (laughs) They know Jillian Michaels. Those guys are taking their shirt off on YouTube. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. You're not wrong. We, I, we've, we've, we've gotten to this multiple times. Yeah, I don't know the answer. I think the answer is, I guess, more smart people just have to become more marketable. It's yeah. kind of, and that usually is the road you have to go down to some extent. I think there's a way to do it that classy. That the best way that anyone's ever explained it. The smart people have to become more marketable. Yeah. Actually, completely. Like, Eric Cressy is not marketable. Like... He's not. He's he was big in terms of the world we're talking about, but people don't know who he is other than like the echo chamber. He wasn't really uh, tr- trying the, to be. Like Glenar Humor internal rotation deficit. When you post a video about that, people don't get that excited. About, I mean, I get excited, I get excited about, about it. The average mm-hmm. person doesn't. So. No. I just think it's cool because they train like what the reigning National League and American League uh, Major League Baseball Cy Young Award winners, Corey Kluber and Max Scherzer. And that, uh, those come out of- that gym is like... Ridiculous. I, I visited and it, it's just, I, I wrote a blog post afterwards, like the mecca of sports performance. Absolutely. Just, well, yeah. We had PG everything Quiano. that you would want to see is in there and everybody's doing like picture perfect. <laughs> like this is how training should be. Yeah. We had Pete Dupuy on here, uh, the, the co-owner with Cressy and Pete, Pete's amazing. It was really, I, I hope to visit it someday. And we had, was it Sohi and Jordan Sider, both former interns of Cressies, which I'm not sure everybody knew about that. I didn't realize that about Sohi. So, well, it's because you yeah. don't know it because it's not marketable. Like that's not <laughs> well, even, those like, two, those two are super marketable. But you wouldn't even great. have known that. And, like that's where it's kind of you kind of look. I, at I it. guess it's not like a calling card for them because their audiences don't give a crap about that. That's actually a really good point. Uh, I think it did a lot for them in the industry, but yeah, <laughs> we care. So. We've talked a little bit about research, and every once in a while we get a guest on here who, and you seem like one of those types, you even said it, that you'd like to geek out reading research. 
But um, re- research for fun is not an allowed answer when we ask, uh, do you have any books you love or feel worth sharing with others? So what else you got for us? I don't know. Okay. Sure, it happens. What's the book? We're back recording? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah all right. We had a little uh, interruption there, guys. We lost some audio, but uh, we're back. So, yeah, Travis, we're asking you what book you'd recommend everybody. It's not research. Yeah. So, there's a book that I read a couple summers ago. The author is Todd Hargrove, and the book is called A Guide to Better Movement, The Science and Practice of Moving with More Skill and Less Pain. So, Todd is a brilliant guy. Uh, he's a rolfer and okay, Feldenkrais yeah. practitioner nice. in Seattle. And he, uh, he gets into a lot of the stuff that I talked about, about like the psychological aspects of pain and movement. Yeah. And it's, it's a really accessible read. So, and it's, it's not too long. So Have you ever had uh, rolfing done? I've, I've been interested in rolfing. Have you ever had it done? Yes. It, so, was it good? It was amazing. Yeah. I have a friend who just he prior to getting his rolfing certification, he was a Thai style body worker, and so maybe a year ago he went to Germany and did a rolfing thing, and he came back and we did ten sessions together, and I I, I came into it with like a very scientifically skeptical approach, I guess which is characteristic of me. And just for anyone, yeah. roll thing is yeah. like basically, it's not fascial massage, but they're basically like moving fascia, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's, the, that's the idea behind yeah. it. But I, because there are so many people in my sphere who are very much against manual therapy, yeah. I wanted to try to go into it and just see scientifically what would happen over doing 10 mm-hmm. sessions. And I had, I had a really great experience. Um, and so I, I would say anybody who is curious about it should definitely try it. Um, it's it can be uncomfortable. It's yeah. very deep work, but um, if you're into that or if you uh, can can withstand the the I heard it's painful. I heard yeah. it's very painful, I, especially I, when you get. I, up. I try not to use that word because it's it's not like uh, it's not a bad pain. No, it it just it it hurts and then it feels better. So. What you find was the worst? I think I heard like the the jaw and like the like the super the backline shit up here was like really bad in the jaw and the back of the neck. Well, so the crazy. I don't even know if you guys will believe me when I say this. He worked in my mouth, yeah, and in my nostrils. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that was different and very uh, intense. Um, so yeah, e- each week basically, I wrote this was the most intense session ever. Like because I took notes afterwards. I'm a dork. Um, but that was that was the one where I was like, "Ooh, uh, that I probably wouldn't do again if I had the chance not to." <laughs> you can Which do it. I just, probably will. Just jam I probably your there. will be able to live the rest of my life without having work done inside my mouth and inside my nostrils. <laughs> Perfect. That was actually fun. Um, okay, we gotta end this with just I guess where people can find you. But where, where's the best place to consume the fitness pollinator? That's his name. Yeah. That's his name. I so, love it. Fitnesspollinator.com is the website. If you Google my name, uh, you should be able to find that. Uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, probably too much. I'm occasionally on Instagram and Twitter, so either my name or fitnesspollinator.com should, or Googling fitnesspollinator should come up with that. And it's pollinator with an E. I mean, I'm sure well, people downloading the one. And the soon podcast. you'll be able to be Dr. Pollinator. Yeah, <laughs> one to two to three years, depending on buy whether the, I... Buy the web domain now. Did you buy the domain yet? 
the oh doc I, I've been struggling with that. So <laughs> it's just like two I, bucks get it I now. Switch from fitnesspollinator.com to Travis Pollen because it's more professional or Dr. Travis Pollen. But I think I don't know. Fitness Pollinator just kinda is memorable, I in my opinion. It's goofy and buy it just in case because I'll go buy it right after this and I'll sell it to you when you want to stop. like I'll give you a deal, but it'll be in the thousands. That sounds like a good deal. Yeah, I could buy it right now for $15 a year and not have to worry about it. Correct, because I'll do it. I have good ideas every podcast, and that, that was probably my good one. Dean has a side business as a cyber squatter for all our guests <laughs> and all their possible website domains. I don't think it's been very profitable so far. No, I haven't had bought in any. Well, it, this it one takes I time for people to realize that <laughs> Dean has their domain, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not going to be, you know. It's a long uh, gone. The long payoff, like in 10 not years. Not going to be a, a big cash flow right away. <laughs> no, it's. So they'll, get... they'll reap the millions later. Yeah. And just take one of John Goodman's uh, desired yeah. website things because he, he always talks about how, like, like he got online trainer. I, I mean, I'm sure that was taken and he managed to get it. So, Oh, there's a few. There, you'd be surprised at how much people will pay for it. Like it's, it's like tens of thousands for, for certain ones. There's an actual, like there's an actual business for it. People do it. It's fucked. They just think of good names and then they just well, it's, like, it's like buying concert tickets to a concert you're not going to. Yeah. Like you shouldn't do that. That's not nice. <laughs> people want to go to the concert, but you can make hundreds of dollars. Like you could, that could be your full-time job. I feel like it's not a good choice, but like you said, there's people that do it. But um, I guess what our normal spiel is if, if you're one of Travis's listeners, um, who, who else could they go see? I guess Brad Dieter or well, we've mentioned, we, you know, We mentioned a few people that uh, you presented with who I think are, are not yeah. unlike minds, scientifically minded people. Again, Brad Dieter and James Krieger, yeah. they've each been on our podcast individually. They also did a recent podcast together that might be a really fantastic one. You get to see a little bit more of what we do with our guests. We've had prominent brilliant minds like dr mike isertel on the podcast his his two episodes are really fun stuff uh we're going to continue to try to put on a lot more brilliant guests obviously we don't want stupid people on the podcast and try to share stupid people with the world so if you if this is the first time you've you've heard us you know yeah check out one more of our episodes someone look through our list and see somerset oh we've had three episodes of dean somerset that's three to shoot for yeah yeah, and because Dean lives here in Edmonton with us, we're pretty good friends. We've known him a really long time, so Dean is always really happy to jump on. And a lot of the stuff that Dean gets into is not at all dissimilar from what you're doing. So I think your listeners would probably really appreciate Dean. They probably mostly know who he is. And then if you're one of our longtime listeners who's first time you're ever finding Travis, well, we brought Travis on for a reason because he's a really smart guy. He's got some cool stuff that he's doing. Go check out his social media. Go give him a follow. See if it resonates with you. And, uh, you know, interact with him on social media. Ask him questions. Post on his Instagram. Go check out that video where he's doing one-armed, legit one Call, call, one call him a cheater. Call him a cheater. Hashtag cheater. It's pretty. I, I love the haters. It's pretty <laughs> badass. And, guys, thanks again for tuning in, Travis. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate thanks, it. Guys. And uh, we'll look forward to probably having you back in the not-terribly-distant future. Let's do it. Good. I think he's good. Shut up and sit down.